Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Bob Wilson, Associate Professor of Geography at Syracuse University and host of New Books in Geography. Today I'll be speaking to Ann Knowles, author of Mastering Iron, The Struggle to Modernize an American Industry, 1800-1868, and co-editor of the recently published Geographies of the Holocaust. Hello, this is Bob Wilson, Associate Professor of Geography at Syracuse University and host of New Books in Geography. Today I'll be speaking to Ann Knowles, author of Mastering Iron, The Struggle to Modernize an American Industry, 1800-1868, and co-editor of the recently published Geographies of the Holocaust. Ann Knowles is a professor in the Department of Geography at Middlebury College and current chair of the Association of American Geographers Historical Geography Specialty Group. Professor Knowles is also an expert on historical geography and a pioneer in the rapidly growing fields of historical geographic information systems, or GIS, and the spatial humanities. The digital revolution of the past two decades is changing historical scholarship in profound ways, including our use of maps and other spatial images. Better than anyone else I know of, Professor Knowles' work shows the scholarly potential and even beauty of adding GIS maps and other spatial uh, visualizations to the historians and geographers toolkit. Both Mastering Iron and Geographies of the Holocaust are outstanding examples of the use of historical GIS to better understand the past, even of subjects historians and geographers thought they well understood. So it is my great pleasure to speak to Ann Knowles today. Ann, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Bob. I'm delighted to be here. That's great. Uh, Ann, can you tell us a little bit about your background? For instance, how did you get interested in historical geography? Well, I was a devoted English major and editor going through college, and I I worked for eight years as a professional book editor before I happened to meet an historical geographer named Michael Conzen, who worked with me on a new U.S. history survey textbook for a small publisher in Chicago back in the late 1980s. I just fell head over heels in love with how exciting it was to see the past in geographical terms. Every place I went became vivid, and the palimpsest of time just suddenly sprung up all around me. So I immediately applied for graduate school. I went to graduate school, took my first geography class at the age of 30, and have been a a born-again historical geographer ever since. That's outstanding. Um, But if I understand your background correctly, you didn't come into graduate school initially with a a strong interest in geographic information systems and those sorts of new technologies. So how did you begin to incorporate those sorts of technologies uh, into your scholarship? Well, it's interesting. Everybody thinks about GIS as a technology, and of course it is. But for me, there's been a steady line, a constant interest in visualizing the past. First, for me, that was drawing with rapidograph pens on mylar. 
then it became computer-assisted mapping with Adobe Illustrator in its early days. I went through graduate school just as GIS was getting going at Madison, University of Wisconsin-Madison, and so I didn't take any GIS classes. Uh, I sort of bootstrapped myself into that technology, seeing it primarily as a way to do more ambitious kinds of mapping and spatial analysis then handmade maps first allowed me in the 1980s and 90s. Okay, absolutely. Um, and how are you using uh, more generally GIS in your uh, work? Like what was the first project, for instance, that you began using this sort of technology? Or maybe it was so gradual it's hard to say, like, here's a definitive moment I was using it um, or not. There was actually quite a definitive moment. A mutual friend of ours, Anne Mosher, geographer at Syracuse University, introduced me in the early 1990s to a man named um, uh, Richard Healy, who was at the University of Portsmouth. He was one of the first geographers in Britain to get involved with GIS. He and I found that we were kindred spirits wanting to work with data sets for historical projects on 19th century America. He was working on coal. I was beginning to work on iron. And it was Richard and another British friend of mine, Ian Gregory, who gave me my first tutorials in GIS and walked me through how to construct a database. That baby database with Richard became the basis for mastering iron a database of over 1,100 ironworks that operated in the United States in the early 19th century. So that was what I sort of got familiar with GIS, and I was immediately applying the technology to historical questions. That's fascinating. Um, I don't know if you had an opportunity to listen to last month's podcast, who our guest was Susan Shulton. Uh, uh-huh. a historian and a historian of geography and cartography, who's written a fascinating new book called Mapping the Nation. Yes. And that book, in a nutshell, looks at the development of thematic cartography in the United States. So would you see GIS essentially as a 21st century version of, of, of creating thematic maps? Yes, I would. Uh, that's part of Susan's argument in that book, that it does 19th century statistical vision carries forward quite directly to GIS. Uh, It also carries forward the problems of statistical mapping and the limitations of statistical mapping, which I have been grappling with more and more in the geographies of the Holocaust Project. So I like to tell people that GIS can enable you to do things because of its capacity for data and iterative visualization that no other method allows you. At the same time, it has quite serious limitations that you need to be aware of. And one of the most important for the Holocaust has been realizing really deep down that it doesn't show emotion, that it looks abstract, that it it can even distance the researcher from the humanity of what you're studying. So GIS is not a cure-all. Yeah, I see that. And I would like to get to that issue a little bit later when we talk about uh, your geographies of the Holocaust, because that's not only such an important topic, but, a, but an explosive and deeply emotional topic. Uh, and so GIS does seem to offer some opportunities to, to look at this in a new way, but also this distancing aspect, I think, is very real. But, but why don't we wait a moment to talk about that? Now, sometimes I hear this 
sort of new subfield, I guess we want to call it, of historical GIS, also sometimes here called spatial humanities. Is there really a difference between that, or is that just a broader term uh, that incorporates both people doing historical work and more contemporary work? I think for most practitioners, uh, for most people in history and geography and related fields, as well as people in fields like historic preservation who are getting involved in this, the two terms are interchangeable and it doesn't really matter. But there are nuances that matter to those of us who are trying to define the fields in ways that are particularly theoretically useful and that acknowledge all of the virtues and problems of methodology. In that sort of smaller group, in which I include myself, historical GIS is pretty straightforwardly the use of GIS in historical scholarship and teaching. Spatial humanities is particularly being promoted right now by a group led by David Bodenhammer, an American historian at um, in Indianapolis, and he's the head of the Polis Center. He's been working with a couple other scholars to try to promote a bigger vision that GIS can be the basis for a much larger humanistic spatial history that includes and incorporates in digital platforms all sorts of visualizations, 3D visualizations, voice, simulation, and so forth. Uh, And that really goes beyond the traditional sort of bounds of GIS. The interesting thing about spatial humanities is that nobody yet has realized that grand vision. David himself will laugh about, well, yes, someone else will build the grand machine (laughs) that can recreate the past in three dimensions. Uh, But it is a very stimulating sort of desiderata. What can we try to do that makes history more vivid, especially to a popular audience, by thinking about that grand vision? Now, it seems you've made an attempt at doing this in a number of ways, not just the books that that we're going to discuss today, but in a really fascinating project you were a part of possibly it was led by the Smithsonian or associated with the Smithsonian, about the Battle of Gettysburg. Uh, and can you tell us a little bit about that project and what you were trying to do there? Yes, that was an extraordinary opportunity. The Smithsonian Institution's commercial arm, actually, Smithsonian Enterprises, approached me after I was awarded the Smithsonian American Ingenuity Award in 2012 about whether I would like to use my Gettysburg research as some sort of big online thing to mark, to help the Smithsonian mark the 150th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg. And because Smithsonian Enterprises had a lot of resources to throw at the project, it became a wonderful, very intense digital project that involved web designers at ESRI who created the Uh, online web platform, and then a group of very talented cartographers and a 3D animator uh, at a company called um, Mapping uh, International Mapping uh, outside of Washington, D.C., led by Alex Tate. And what this team, along with me and one of my student researchers, Dan Miller, were able to do was take my historical research much farther by visualizing the battlefield in digital three dimensions, which I had only been able to do as a flat two-dimensional GIS visualization before. And we also were inspired not just to ask what could General Lee see from several known points on the battlefield, that's what I'd done in the first version of the project, but what could Union commanders see 
And so we picked six historically significant viewpoints, two on each of the three days of the battle, and positioned ourselves digitally in a general's footsteps Mm -hmm. and then asked, okay, what could General Warren see and what could another Confederate commander see? That became a much more satisfying project. The other thing was that unlike the first project, which was in an academic book, the online visualization was available to the world. And it was really a thrill to reach that broader audience because actually that's something I always want to do in my scholarship. So thank you to the Smithsonian for making that possible. Well, and I encourage all our listeners to to search for that. I'll try and provide a link for it on the, the webpage for this interview. But you can certainly search on Google and other online search tools for just Dan Knowles' Battle of Gettysburg and find um, and find that. It's a fascinating thing to look at. And I think it really illustrates the power of these maps and other sorts of visualizations, spatial visualizations, for lack of a better term. I think to can really I just br- add, Go ahead, go ahead. Thank you. I just want to add one little thing that um, people may not realize it, but the base of that whole project, everything they see online, is a 19th century map. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, an extraordinary map that was made by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers that was more detailed than any digital data I could find when I started the project in the late 1990s, and it remains an exquisite work of art. So something I'd like to add to your encouragement to everybody else is, if you find a gorgeous historical map that's in your wheelhouse of interest as a scholar or practitioner, figure out how to use it digitally. Um, And that's where I loved that you mentioned in the introduction the word beauty. I think we communicate best when our work is beautiful, whether it's visual or oral or on the page. Um, So a beautiful historical map can really excite people, I think. Well, and I think that uh, typifies some of the real, not just potential, but what you're actually doing and other practitioners in this field is making uh, the past come alive, but showing... Uh, how these maps can be beautiful to really kind of uh, suck you in. And I think not only your contemporary book, but as we talked about last month with Susan Shulton, Mapping the Nation, you look at these historic maps and the way they were self-consciously created to try Mm -hmm. and get people excited, engaged in understanding the past. So it's, I think this is a fascinating set of tools that, that many different scholars can use to reach different uh, publics. The, the power of, of these visual images is really strong. Absolutely. Well, why don't we dive into these two uh, both fascinating, stimulating, and beautiful books. Uh, and the first one is Mastering Iron. And this is a, your single-authored book about the making and development of the iron industry in the antebellum period. So can you tell us a little bit more detail what the book is about and what you're looking at with the iron industry during this time? Yes, my basic historical question that really drove the whole project was that I wanted to try to explain something other historians had left unexplained, namely, why did it take about 70 years for American businessmen and entrepreneurs to develop a modern, large-scale iron industry when folks in Britain, in all across Britain, in England and Wales and Scotland, had figured it out by the end of the 18th century. Mm-hmm. Why did the Brits corner the market, the world market, 
for cheap iron when the United States had all of the resources that it needed to do that. And in the other published histories on heavy metal and heavy manufacturing in the United States, this earlier period before the Civil War was treated as sort of a weird backwater that American iron producers just didn't know what good practice was. They weren't interested in modernization. I just didn't buy that because everything else about the antebellum period shows enormous American creativity and uh, efforts to be creative and productive and, and make a lot of money. So that's where I started. Well, why was uh, iron so important in antebellum mm. America? Can you talk a little bit about that as well? Yes. Um, I came to see iron, this funny, dull, dirty gray metal, as really the foundation of American industrialization. Iron was necessary, of course, for the railroads, the rails, the engines, the wheels, <clears throat> but it was also important for all sorts of other things. The ginning mechanism inside a cotton gin is made of cast iron. The pots that pioneers used, the, eye, the nails that pioneers used on the Midwestern frontier to build their balloon frame wooden houses were all made of iron. Mm-hmm. And for, for the United States to become, to provide its own domestic supply of this basic building material and material for machinery, it needed somehow to develop a large-scale industry. Shall I tell you the biggest single problem? Please. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't set out to find this answer, but what all of my sources pointed to was that in the United States, the basic materials for making iron, um, the ore, iron ore, limestone that you use in getting the ore out of the rock, or the metal out of the rock, and charcoal, which made the highest grade, were physically separate, particularly uh, the fuel, and they wanted to use coal so they could produce much more iron. Coal was very far away from good iron ore deposits. In Britain, in contrast, those elements were literally piled on top of each other like a geological layer cake. And so, that's one of the things that makes Britain different than the United States. You talk about the book right. is, the, is the geographical proximity of all of these key ingredients Whereas in the U.S. they're spread about or separated by mountain ranges and things such as that. That's right. And that built in enormous transportation costs and problems like lack of dense settlement that could provide labor. Um, So there were all sorts of physical obstacles to overcome. Now, how are you using, uh, we're talking about geography and how the geography of the industry is different between the Britain in the U.S., and this has very serious ramifications for how the indus- this pivotal industry for the Industrial Revolution in both countries is, is different. So how mm-hmm. does using historical GIS really help you get at these issues of uh, the differences in geography? I saw the first task of my research to be a really thorough description of the iron industry not an impressionistic description, which is what we had from other historians, but a detailed on-the-ground accounting of exactly where were ironworks, and especially when did they develop in different parts of the country, and what kinds of technology did they use? Was it, in fact, true 
that American iron makers were small and backward looking and used old fashioned technology. That was the sort of reputation they had. So I wanted to document the sort of facts on the ground. There were hundreds, actually a couple thousand small ironworks in the country in the antebellum period. That's way too many to map by hand. Mm -hmm. And I knew that there was a source, a book, that's a sort of um, industrial phone book to all of the iron uh, manufacturers in this period. And it was actually set up as if for a data geek, because the information about the ironworks is line by line in a certain order, so you can just extract the data and dump it into a database. Yes. Now, of course, it wasn't quite that easy. It took a couple of years to build the database. Sure. But once, once that was done, I could ask all of my questions about technology, development, and document the differences between regions. And sure enough, I found that only one region in the United States closely matched the British model for proximity of resources, density of population, and other crucial characteristics. Everywhere else in the United States, things were really skewed and difficult. So that was the sort of documentary starting point for the whole argument. Now, this seems one of the really fascinating aspects of the Spatial Humanities and Historical GIS, is that you're just not, here's the data, I insert it in the database and I create this one map, and, the, and the, the purpose of putting the data in is just to create this one map. You basically have a database that you can work with and create dozens, maybe even hundreds of different iterations to ask a question, and then you can spatially represent it, which in turn raises new questions. So as uh, a research method, not just as a final product. Absolutely. It has become the research method that I count on the most for getting the sense of a complicated subject. So it really helps you to look at different facets of a complicated project and maybe yes. see things that you would not otherwise see. Uh, oh, that goes on constantly. And that even begins to happen before you create any visuals any maps, sure. because the process of entering historical data into a database forces you, A, to realize how much you do and do not know, and B, how good your source is, and C, you begin to notice patterns which lead to the visual exploration. So it really becomes an immersive interrogation of the data. Well, that's that's absolutely fascinating. Now, the challenges of getting in the data, I mean, do you literally, you or, or your team of staff have to enter each point of data manually, or are there ways using new sorts of tools to digitize this and harvest that data, for lack of a better word, without having to enter uh, it all in manually? There, there are now big data tools, but that's not the way that I've worked, partly because uh, in all of my GIS projects so far, historical sources I've worked with have been too idiosyncratic and inconsistent to be able to treat them in any kind of monolithic uniform way. So I've, I've usually worked with one student, usually an undergraduate student research assistant at a time, to populate these databases. And by populate, you mean type them in individually. <laughs> Sorry, put the, put the information in, cell by cell by cell. I know, that's a, that's a very... Uh, elegant term for a very laborious process, but <laughs> populating. I like that. Yeah. Uh, you devote your early, the first chapter of the book, really looking at at this 
uh, source, the Iron Manufacturer's Guide to the Furnaces, Forges, and Rolling Mills of the United States, which might not be on many of our listeners' uh, uh, um, bookshelves right now, but I bet it is a book that you are intimately familiar with after all these years mm-hmm. of using. Um, and so you use that to create really some really fascinating maps in that section. And then you go on later in the book to, uh, now that you've sort of mapped the geography of all, all these different manifestations of this industry, to delving into uh, the labor and the workers who were so important. It's, it's not just a matter of here are the key ingredients, sort of coal and, and charcoal and, of course, the iron ore itself, but the a tremendous amount of expertise and just manual labor that's needed. So you devote a couple of chapters to labor. So maybe you could tell our listeners about what you learned in the, by writing those chapters. Oh, my. Those were... Well, I I have favorites throughout the book, but the middle chapter on failure is probably my favorite chapter of all, partly because it's based on a large cache of manuscript records in the Harvard Business School collection that happened to survive. You know, and as a fellow historical scholar, the thrill of finding something nobody has ever used. And there was foot upon foot of storage boxes of letters from this uh, between the various members of this company in the 1830s and what those manuscript letters revealed what were all of the personal tensions at an unfortunate site in the middle of the Pennsylvania woods where a few characters with terribly big egos who thought they knew it all (laughs) were doing a terrible job managing immigrant Welsh workers who thought they really knew how to build and run an ironworks. And the personal fireworks in the backwoods basically destroyed the company over time. So I appreciate your focusing for a minute on labor because it wasn't just the physical difficulties of producing iron. There were also all sorts of personal stories that explain the varying success and failure of companies in similar circumstances. And that's also, of course, where economics comes to life when you hear voices in the manuscript pages and you see someone's personality moving things in a positive or a negative direction and you want to say, no, no, don't do that. Don't go there. Don't do <laughs> and then he does. And the, the most literally striking moment for me on, on this kind of personal impact of the work was when I found a single letter in a Richmond, Virginia archive uh, I was studying the Tredegar Ironworks in Richmond, the biggest iron maker for the Confederacy in the Civil War. And I found a letter signed with an X by a man who was a manager in Wales who was trying to get a job up in Pennsylvania at the ironworks that eventually failed. And he says in this letter that someone else wrote for him that uh, he really wants to join this adventurous band on the Pennsylvania frontier. Then I found an obituary in the Richmond Tribune, I believe it was, the local newspaper, that he died in a fistfight a few weeks later. Oh, wow. And putting those two together, you think how chance moves our lives. Yes, you know? yes, absolutely. Uh-huh. Uh, one thing that I'd also add about these chapters for our listeners is the incredible paintings, the uh, reproductions of paintings that are, especially in these chapters, are really magnificent. I had no idea that 
uh, artist and paintings of such quality were made in part about the iron industry. It really attracted <laughs> yeah. a lot of, uh, of, of really incredible talent during this era. And so you not only have the wonderful maps and other visualizations that, that you and your team have created, but also uh, these illustrations. So the book is really a, a, a magnificent book in that way, too. Now, towards the very end of the book, one of the, I think the last main chapter of the book focuses on the Civil War. And so why was the Civil War such a, a major turning point for the iron industry in the United States? It was the decisive moment of modernization, I think. First of all, because the Civil War severely tested manufacturers of all time. They had to produce suddenly much more than they had before. They also had opportunities to profiteer from federal contracts. The, re- the biggest story, the most dramatic story, I think, was in the South, because the whole front end of the book sets out very clearly that the South, as many of us know, had not been putting its capital into heavy industry. So when they rather suddenly had to be mounting an industrial war against a highly industrialized north of the United States, they were at a terrible disadvantage. So the real drama in that chapter is the Confederacy struggling to find ways to make arms and to hold on to the skilled workers who were so essential to iron manufacturing. There were some real fights over labor. Were they going to become cannon fodder or were they going to stay in place and make cannon? Yes, absolutely. And that chapter shows it, it it seems comes up again and again as you have these iron workers and they're being uh, conscripted and pulled into uh, the military and then fights by the people running these uh, uh, iron operations to well we really need these people to help the, the war effort if, yeah. if you don't have anybody to, to build all of the, the weapons and other important supplies it's going to be very hard to to maintain this military campaign Right. And that was a moment where the importance of culture in shaping economic activity came through for me. As much as anything, it was the cultural prejudices of Southern uh, elites that made them, many of them, so blind to the importance of skilled industrial labor. Yes, absolutely. Um, There's a lot more that I would like to talk about with Mastering Iron, but I want to make sure that we have enough time to talk about the other book that you've been recently involved with. Uh, and historical GIS was very important in Mastering Iron, but it's as important it sees in some ways maybe even more so in a book that you've co-edited called Geographies of the Holocaust, which is a project I think you've been involved with in, in many ways for a, for a number of years. So can you tell me about how you got involved with the larger project, Geographies of, of the Holocaust, not just the book itself, but this larger project? Sure. Um, it started with a telephone call about nine years ago, I think it was 2005, 2006, from someone at the Holocaust Museum who really said this wonderful line, we've heard that there's this thing called GIS and that it (laughs) might help us deal with uh, the enormous trove of records that we have, particularly they were expecting an enormous shipment of something like 8 million individual documents, copies coming from the International Tracing Service in, in Europe which helped connect survivors of the Holocaust with their family and relatives. Um, and much of many of those 8 million records have geographic information attached. Mm. So some very 
forward-looking people at the Holocaust Museum wanted to begin to figure out how they could facilitate mapping information about the Holocaust for scholars. That led in 2007 to my helping to organize an interdisciplinary workshop with nine scholars, uh, four uh, geographers of various kinds and five Holocaust historians, really just to talk about the potential for using GIS and other geographic methods to study the Holocaust. To our knowledge at that time, no one had seriously used GIS at all to study the Holocaust, and not many social scientists had become engaged with the Holocaust either. We came out of that workshop so fired up and so eager to work together that that launched us as a collaborative. We now call ourselves the Holocaust Geographies Collaborative. Mm-hmm. Um, to find some money, which we did from NSF the next year. And the results of the NSF prototype projects are between the covers of our book, Geographies of the Holocaust. Now, the Holocaust is obviously a, a, a subject of great importance in 20th century world history, not just mm-hmm. European history. That has received an enormous amount of attention from, from scholars in Europe and in the United States and elsewhere. So what do you think bringing this sort of GIS perspective brings that different, that's different or helps uh, complement or, or, or push forward some of this, this other scholarly work? I think the two most important things which are related is that using GIS enables comparative Holocaust scholarship and it brings space front and center in the Holocaust. Comparative work has been very difficult in Holocaust studies so far, largely because uh, documenting and analyzing the Holocaust is an immense archival task. And I have enormous respect for the many historians and other kinds of scholars who have grappled with the original documents. That's absolutely crucial. But because that work tends to be so locally focused on, say, a particular concentration camp or a particular ghetto or a shtetl and its um, population, its people, there's been very little comparative work for understanding the different intensities and and timing and uh, even the numbers of people killed in different places. So using GIS, much in the way that it gave me the whole geography and general history of the iron industry, we're beginning to build large data sets that give us a very broad view of the Holocaust over its whole duration across the European continent. And that really sets up, as you suggested earlier, it raises different questions. Just one little example I can give. Sometimes when you see a map, something jumps out at you. One of our maps in the chapter on the concentration camps that were set up by the SS has a map that shows the relationships between work camps and the big main camps that people are familiar with, like Auschwitz and Buchenwald and so forth. Well, on one of the maps that draws little lines between the labor camps and the main camps, there's a weird outlier in Kiev. There's a labor camp that's 800 miles away from its main camp. Mm -hmm. And that raises right away questions of, is that a a friend or a relative in charge of that Kiev work camp? Or is there something really valuable going on there? Why is that outlier so different from all the others on the map? So your eye goes to the exceptions. Um, 
we are just getting started with this project and we are not trying after seven years, we feel we're just getting started. We're not trying to build a whole GIS of the Holocaust, but we're taking a series of topics in turn to try to focus on some of the big questions. Right now, for example, I'm beginning to build a a database of ghettos because everyone knows there were strong relationships in space and time between the creation of the camps and the creation of the ghettos and then the liquidation of the ghettos when thousands and millions of people were sent to concentration camps and death camps, many of them to their death. But no one has ever looked at that relationship, mapped it, studied it, analyzed its regional differences. So that's my immediate project for the next year to try to get those two fundamental parts of the Holocaust into relationship with one another rather than treating them separately as others have done. I see. And you, looking through the book, again, this is an edited collection, but you contribute to at least a couple of chapters beyond the introduction, one that focuses on the SS concentration camps and one that focuses on Auschwitz. Uh, Can you tell us, you know, briefly for our listeners, what you and the other scholars were trying to do in those two chapters? Yes. Um, In the camps chapter, we were trying to answer the question, did did the camps have a kind of spatial logic, as many people have sort of assumed, the Nazis and the Germans in general having such a reputation for being masters of logic. Uh, And that set us on the road of building a database with data from the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., that would enable us to map by time. One of the first things we did was make an animated map of the opening of the camps and the closing of the camps. And what that in itself quickly reveals is that there were crazy, crazily different patterns of construction and development. It was very methodical at first. Then it really picks up speed. Then in late 1943 and throughout 1944, there's an explosion of labor camps uh, and then a very rapid collapse. And this raises questions about why were the Nazis pouring so many resources into incarcerating people and then killing people in the face of very rapid advances on both sides from the Allies and the Russians. Um, That's not particularly a new question, but our animation does show the extremity of what the Nazis were doing. So that's a start on a much bigger project. The Auschwitz project is at a very different scale. We wanted to make a digital reconstruction of as much of the camp as we could in a couple of years in order to study site. And this was related to what I learned from the Gettysburg Project, that asking what could historical figures see in a certain landscape could help you understand their decisions. In the case of Auschwitz, we started by wanting to know where were were camp prisoners most vulnerable to the guards, to Mm -hmm. the armed guards who patrolled certain spaces and were up in the guard towers. Um, But in the course of building a a digital reconstruction of Birkenau based on architectural plans, we began to learn other things about the camp that are opening up yet more avenues of research. But those were our starting questions. Did you find this particularly um, challenging given your research background? Because you've mostly, (laughs) from my understanding, done research on the United States, you know, iron industry, among other things, and on Wales. And now you're immersed in this topic, 
granted with a team of other scholars, many of whom are, are experts on the Holocaust in that part of Europe. So did you find this particularly challenging because you're delving into a different time, a different place, a different subject? Enormously challenging and really scary. Yes. I, we worked for seven years before the book came out, and for six of those years, I felt like an imposter. Mm-hmm. I didn't belong there. I didn't know the historiography. I hadn't read the literature. I'd forgotten my college German years ago. Yeah. What was I doing here? But the kind of miraculous, wonderful thing that happened among all of us in the collaborative group is that all of us had insecurities of one kind or another. The Holocaust historians didn't know anything about GIS or spatial questions. So what happened was that we, partly just because we really liked each other, Mm -hmm. we trusted each other not to let our research partner fail Mm -hmm. and to to teach one another and, and sort of coax ourselves along. Out of that has grown the most wonderful working relationships I've ever had. And we still are learning, but we've also, all of us, gained a bit more confidence. And I've also had the opportunity at Middlebury of teaching courses on the Holocaust. And as as you know, teaching a course is a great way to learn material. So that's been a huge help. Yeah, it seems with this project, not only do you have to bring your various types of expertise to this collaborative enterprise, you need to build a certain amount of rapport with one another to work on such a large project, and particularly with their, so many different people have gaps in their knowledge, and they really depend on one another. If you don't trust each other and probably like each other, it's going to be very hard to to work on a multi-year, even decade-long project, it seems. Yeah, I think part of the culture of GIS is that if it isn't fun, don't do it Yes, because it's hard. It's hard work. But if it is also fun, then it's one of the most exciting things a scholar can do these days, I think. Now, we talked about earlier about the the strengths of GIS in a project like this to allow you to do, uh, as you mentioned, comparative studies of different aspects of the Holocaust and to visualize things we weren't able to visualize. But there's also this potential pitfall of GIS in that there is this distancing that I don't know if it's inevitable, but does seem to be part of this to getting this larger, I don't know, maybe synoptic view is, is an emotional distancing. And there are probably few historical topics that are more emotionally wrenching in some ways than the Holocaust. And so how did you and the other scholars negotiate this as you did the project? We talked about it almost from the start, actually. Um, One of the great things about the diversity of our group and the fearlessness of everyone is that we were able to challenge one another and say, this looks like we're replicating the Nazis' view. Mm -hmm. Um, But to be frank, the strongest questions that forced us to confront that issue came from our audiences. We, We did, gosh, dozens and dozens of presentations together and separately, and there there came a sort of recurring question, where are the people, or the most disturbed people in the audience, were those who said, you have reduced victims of the Holocaust to points on a map. Mm -hmm. What are you doing? This is as bad as the Nazis. And that question resonated more and more strongly as we were editing the chapters for the book. We came out of that experience deciding that we needed to make a whole new effort to refocus the next phase of our project on individuals 
and we are now working with a new research partner, the Shoah Foundation at University of Southern California, sure. to use video testimonies by Holocaust oh, survivors yes. from the Shoah Foundation, which means developing a whole new set of methodologies, including GIS, but many other things as well, um, to humanize mm-hmm. um, what we've done so far and to think in new ways, to force ourselves to grapple with a whole new set of methodological issues of dealing with traumatic testimony and how do you represent it? How do you analyze terror? Mm-hmm. So it, it's a very stimulating new phase for us. Is there much, much precedent for that in the spatial humanities or historical GIS? Is working on that scale of an individual and looking at their geography going through some sort of event such as the Holocaust? That's a good question, Bob. Uh, actually, I don't know. Uh, nothing springs to mind. <laughs> well, <laughs> But pioneers in a, in a different way as well. Um, uh, this has been a great conversation. We only have a little bit of time left. But I wanted to, to end by asking you about what I saw as your fabulous lecturer last year. Uh, uh, Anne was the 2014 Distinguished Historical Geographer Lecture at the Association of American Geographers Conference in Tampa. And at, the title of your talk was very straightforward. A uh, title with uh, of kind of a fascinating explanation. It was why we must make maps. And so, why do you think geographers and possibly other scholars, such as historians, must make maps? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we must. Certainly, geographers must make maps because the process of map making is the best way I know to think spatially. Sure. And it is something that uh, has become absolutely central to my teaching. If students can make maps, even by hand, even especially by hand, it triggers a different way of thinking. The mind works differently in that creative space than it does with words in a linear narrative. So that's one reason. Another reason is that Geographers over the decades have developed cartography as a mode of visual argument that can be really powerful. You were talking earlier about how visualizations, beautiful maps especially, can be really persuasive and can draw people in. At a time when history generally is suffering declining enrollments and is a bit uh, in the defensive, trying to justify historical research and publishing and teaching, what better than to make history more vivid, um, more immersive? Mm -hmm. And the third reason, I think, is I I guess I think we have aesthetic obligations Mm -hmm. to do excellent work using all of the arrows in our quiver. Mm -hmm. And it has seemed to me a a minor tragedy that many young scholars in geography in our generation and the generation following have not been learning cartography because it gives you another voice. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I hope that my work and the work of those I I am privileged to share my um, ideas with can re-inspire a new generation of scholars to take up mapping in all of its forms, not just traditional cartography, but there's so many ways to map now that digital humanists are showing up as well. Uh, it's a great opportunity to 
challenge ourselves to be visual communicators, even visual artists. Well, I couldn't agree with that more. And I think it's a very exciting time to be doing this work. And you're doing some of the groundbreaking work on it. And so it's been a real pleasure to talk to you today, Anne. So for our listeners, we've been talking to Professor uh, Ann Knowles at uh, Middlebury College. She is the author of, among other books, Mastering Iron and Geographies of the Holocaust, which we talked about today. So thank you very much for talking with us today, Anne. Thanks so much for the opportunity, Bob. Take care.